Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty. My name is uh, Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll be. I'm going to pray for us and then jump into our text. Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us by your word. And so now, give us ears that would hear, hearts that are open, and eyes that would see your truth. I pray in in Jesus' name, amen. It was my first day on the job. I was a new worship pastor at a church up in the, the North Shore of Chicago, And I was making photocopies for practice that was going to happen in in just a few minutes. Uh, And in walked the person that I was replacing. Her name is Betsy. And I'd heard a lot about Betsy, and and I was a little intimidated following her because of the person I had heard that she was. And we started talking, and, and in the course of talking, she laid out for me why she needed to take a step back from worship leading for a season. After a long-awaited pregnancy, she had had her first child, her daughter Lydia, born. But in the hospital, Lydia got sick, and after a pretty brief fight, Lydia died at just two days old. And so in the middle of of what I thought was making copies for practice, now I'm I'm hearing one of the most devastating stories I've, I've heard in my life. And as I listened to her speak, obviously I was... Grieving, it was brutal to listen to. But what I most took from that conversation was Betsy is a woman of faith. She didn't speak in naive cliches. She didn't work around her grief, her anger, her pain. That she had received God's presence and grace in the midst of brutal tragedy, and I was I was moved. And her story gets at what is really a central question in the Gospel of Luke, which is this, Luke does not hold back. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet God's grace is going to break into this world, and most people won't be able to receive it. And that's a question at the heart of Luke's Gospel. When God's grace intervenes into your life, will you be able to receive it? Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to work into a, a pretty familiar story under three headings this morning. Start with our graceless world, a second, God's grace, and then third, our response. Uh, so first, our graceless world. So we're introduced uh, to two new characters in Luke's gospel, the first two characters of Luke's gospel, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we learn three things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, the first thing we learn is they are, they are a priestly family. Zechariah serves as a priest, and Elizabeth is in the line of Aaron, the first priest in Israel's history. 
So what we've got here is, is a couple that represents centuries of faithfulness to God. Centuries, le- a legacy of generational faithfulness to God. Priest after priest after priest. On down to Zechariah and Elizabeth. The second thing we learn about them, verse 6, they are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These are good people. These are God-righteous people, not self-righteous people. These are the kind of people who, after church, you hope they're the ones who invite you out to lunch. Maybe they get you into their small group. Like th- These are the people you want to hang out with. They are righteous and good people. But then we read third, verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and advanced in years. Now, in this day, the assumption was, if you didn't have a child and you were married, God's curse was on you. Something's wrong with you. As Jill Green writes in his commentary on Luke, what everyone knows or knew in the Judean world of antiquity is that childlessness is a consequence of a blameworthy life and a sign of God's curse. So the incorrect assumption in that day was, if you didn't have a child, something's wrong with you. But we know in the first couple of verses that's not true because Elizabeth is blameless and righteous before God and also unable to have kids. So we know that's not true. But what we also know at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, he's introducing some tension. Why is it that Elizabeth is righteous and doesn't have a child? But also at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we're introduced to one of the most painful experiences human beings can have. To desire to have a child and not be able to. That's why I started with the story of my friend Betsy. It's been a large part of my pastoral ministry, speaking to single women who aren't yet married and desire to have a family but don't yet. We're speaking to uh, ch- uh, couples that don't have children and are, are dealing with lengthy periods of infertility. It's, it's one of the most painful experiences that human beings can have. And that's, Luke, that's where Luke starts us. A married couple who can't have kids. This broken world is broken in so many ways. And this is one of the primary ways it's broken. The desire to have ch- a child and be unable to. That this world can feel like a brutal and graceless place. And we all have our own stories of what that means for us. And Luke starts us there. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so uh, this morning I want to just ask the question, invite you to meditate on it. Which is, where are you at with your hope this season? This world can take it from us in so many ways. You can look at the world and say, nothing good's going to happen. Elizabeth could have lived in that place. And, and more than anything, in, in two weeks as a church, we're going to be in the Advent season. Uh, it's Christmas, yes. I like to call it Advent, which traditionally in the church has been a time of waiting, of anticipation. Right? It's, it's, we tell the birth story of Jesus, yes, Israel's ante- anticipation for the birth of the Messiah. But you and I, we're waiting We're waiting for the return of Jesus to make all things new. That's what Advent's about. It's about both waitings. Yes, Jesus was born. That happened. They waited. But we're waiting now. That's why I think Christmas for me is so powerful. We're waiting. 
And it's easy in the midst of our waiting to stop hoping, to, to, to lose a sense that God is going to break his salvation and grace into this world in profound ways when Jesus comes again. And he already has. So Luke begins his gospel with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, a woman who is obedient to God, even though at this point there's nothing in it for her. She's not being obedient so she can get a child. That dream is past at this point in her life. She's advanced in age. And yet, despite the fact that this world has pressed its brokenness in onto her, she's lived a blameworthy life, obeying the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This broken world hasn't taken her hope. She's living in obedience and expectancy of God, even though her hopes have, have been taken from her. And so this morning, where, where are you at with your, your hope? I said one of the, the central questions of the Gospel of Luke is, when God's grace breaks into the world, are you able to receive it? And one of the ways you know you're able to receive it is you're a person of expectant hope. You just expect God to do things in this world. may not be the things you want him to do, but he's going to do something. And you live with that expectant hope. We're not a bunch of Eeyores as Christians. We don't persist in negativity. Because God does things, and he does big things. And this brutal world can take our hope. Don't let it take yours. Elizabeth is still hoping. But that does raise the question, okay, well, how do you hope in a world like ours? Because it does take from us. It's not to mean Elizabeth's story wasn't brutal. This is years of of childlessness she's gone through, being an outcast in her own community, being looked at as the unrighteous woman when actually she's righteous before the Lord. Well, that leads me to point two. How do we keep hoping in uh, a broken, graceless world? Well, two, the grace of God. So Zechariah now, what happens next is he gets a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, Zechariah was a priest of God, uh, which means uh, one week out of the year for two times a year, he would go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. And during that two-week window of time, uh, there would be lots taken for who got to, to go into the second most holy place in the temple and offer the daily incense, the prayers. And once you drew that lot and you, it was yours, You never did it again. You were out of the running. You only got to do it one time in your life. So Zechariah has drawn the lot for the one time in his life. So you can imagine that. I get to go into the second most holy place in the temple. What am I going to see when I get in there? What he sees is an angel. And the angel has some things to say to him. And he primarily tells Zechariah two things. The first... Uh, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And in the Bible, when your prayer is heard, it means God's going to do something in response to the prayer being heard. But we should be asking the question, well, what prayer is being heard? What prayers? Because in a, a few mo- moments, we'll read that the people were praying outside of Uh, the holy place when Zechariah was offering the incense. So whose prayer is being heard? Is Zechariah's prayer being heard? Elizabeth's prayer being heard for a son? Or is it the people of Israel's prayers asking, praying for the salvation of God? Is that the prayer being heard? And the answer is yes. It's both at the same time. Elizabeth is praying for a son and Israel is praying for the Messiah and the inbreaking of God's salvation into the world. 
And when Zechariah says, your prayer has been heard, he's meaning all of it. It's all going to be answered. But even just to pause for, for a minute, in Luke's gospel, uh, anytime anyone's in the temple, they're praying. That God's house is to be a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56. We'll talk more about that in the months um, ahead. But in this moment, God's people are praying in his temple. He hears, and he's breaking his salvation into the world. And so uh, that's one way the prayer is answered. The other way is, is both Elizabeth and Israel need God's intervention. Elizabeth, or Israel is living under oppression of the a foreign ruler, Roman. That's not how God designed his people to live. And Elizabeth, of course, is living without a child. They both need God's intervention. So the second thing Gabriel says to uh, Zechariah is, this son is going to be an intervention of God's grace into the world. And we read, we read about this, verse uh, 13 and 14. This is your uh, wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. After years of childlessness, Zechariah, the angel says, now you're going to have some joy and gladness. What a beautiful answer to prayer. But the, the second thing then that, that he talks about with John, or with this birth of John, we read verse 15, He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them. He will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, honestly, there's like five sermons in what I just read, and I'm going to give you like five minutes. Uh, but I want to I focus in on two things that the angel says is going to be true of this baby who's going to prepare God's people for the inbreaking of God's grace. Two things he says. The first, and I find this really interesting, Says this baby is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Why is that in there? Key to revival and God's salvation breaking into the before that can happen, fathers have to have their hearts turned to their children. Why? Why fathers? Well, in one sense, uh, the angels just quote Malachi four here. Malachi four five and six says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So in one sense, the angels are saying, hey, Malachi 4, it's happening. But I'm more curious than that. And so I ask, well, why did Malachi say that's going to be true of John, this, this Elijah figure? Why does he say a key role for this person is going to be to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Why fathers? Well, one of the most important books I've, I've read in the last few years is a book called Handing Down the Faith by Christian Smith. Uh, Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and, and what he's done is lengthy studies of uh, children who grow up in the church 
and how they do on into adulthood? The answer is, we're not doing very well. And so he's looked at a variety of reasons, and here's one of his conclusions. The role of fathers is especially important in forming children religiously. Um, Both parents matter a lot in faith transmission, but the role of fathers appear to be particularly crucial. I want to be clear, he's a soci- this is sociology. This isn't he's a super conservative person or, uh, you know, is a culture person. None of that. This is just a sociologist saying, when I look at the, dat- the data and I hear people talking about their faith experience, the father's role is most important. That's what he's saying. So this is sociology, not, not even theology, although I could make the theological case for that. And so what was true in, in the first century was fathers were known to be brutal uh, harsh, not very loving or compassionate with their kids. And, and so in one sense, well, that culture just had a father problem, and it needed to be changed before God's grace could break into the world. Um, and yet I would say to, to us, we need to continue to be asking, well, how are we doing as fathers in teaching our kids the faith? Are our hearts turned to our kids? And so uh, fathers... No matter the age of your kids, you need to be intentional. Fatherhood is a high calling. And what I want to be clear is if, if, you're, if you have uh, kids that are older or kids that are younger that are maybe walking away from church, I'm not saying that's your fault. This is mysterious. I don't know how this, I can't give you a formula on this. What I can say is your role as a father is particularly crucial to whether or not your kids will have faith at the age of 30. And I even want to be clear, that is my goal as pastor. My goal as pastor is not to have as many kids as we have a can on a Sunday morning. It's not for them to have fun, although we do caveat that a little bit. That's why we have donuts um, out on Sunday morning. We want them, I love church. I don't know why, but I love church from the earliest age, and donuts is a key strategy in that. But <laughs> more seriously, that's what I care most about. Will they have faith into adulthood? And that informs our decisions in how we think about ministry. So if you're a father sitting there, I'm going to give you two practical next steps to invite you into in your own role. Because maybe you're just thinking, I, the last thing I needed was to feel overwhelmed about being a father. I over, I'm already overwhelmed. I was just hoping to watch the Bears win and get a nap today. <laughs> and now you're talking to me about how to be a father. Well, okay, so two, two just re- I, you can do both of these things. I'm not saying they're easy, but you can do both of these things. First is start worshiping with your kids, if you have younger kids, start worshiping with your kids in this service as soon as possible. What the studies show is if you have to choose between putting your kids in children's ministry and worshiping with them, worship with them. Far better outcomes in worshiping with them than placing them in age-specific ministry. Now, age-specific ministry is still really important. Uh, Mike Aker and Sarah Pluster, they're awesome. They're doing a great job. We want to in- invest there as well. It's a both and, but if it's an either or, they should be with you in service. That's more important. But that's also what informs some of the ways we're doing ministry. Um, why, uh, when we move to two services, we've, we're going to move back or pull back some of our student ministry programming. The reason for that is Student ministry, age-specific programming, we can do on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. On Sunday mornings, we want them with the adults. We want them with you. Serving alongside you for a service and worshiping alongside you with 
for another service. Not because like we don't want to do that, but because we want them to be Christians at the age of 30, and it's far more important they're in this room than another room to make that happen. The other thing we want to invite you into considering is to be a two-service family or a two-service attender. I know I'm speaking to a lot of empty nesters um, in here, but what we need is we, we need uh, families to come in one service and to uh, hopefully drop their kids off in children's ministry and serve one service. We have, a ton, we, need, we have a ton of needs for children's ministry volunteers. We have a board out there, and my hope is you'll grab a card and think about where you can serve our kids in the weeks and years ahead. You're, you can't age out of children's ministry. It's impossible. If you care about the next generation, we have a really tangible way for you to do that. It's called children's ministry at the 1030 hour. We're going to need your help. We need more volunteers than what we have right um, now. But the hope is if you come on a Sunday morning, you come for two services. You serve one service and you worship another service. That's why we're trying to move everything to, to, to a two-service model. The last thing for, for fathers that's a pretty easy thing. Like you actually don't even have to do anything while they're sitting next to you in service. You just have to be alive next to them in service. <laughs> you might need to do a little bit more than that. But uh, there, there's a theologian I really respect who's done a ton of work on fatherhood and faith retention. And, and I love what he says. He says, the, this is a bit of a hyperbole, but I think it works. He says, the greatest way to tell whether or not a a kid will retain faith into their adulthood is whether or not they heard their father sing in church. I think that's good. Because here's the thing. I don't, like if you come to my house, I'm not going to break out in song. You go to Carol's house, she's going to break out in song. There's going to be singing. It's going to be beautiful, wonderful. Not happening in my house. I sing about one thing in this life, and that's Jesus. And when you sing about something, it's important to you. For your kid to hear that week after week after week is profoundly important. All right, so that's one next step. The other next step, and this is for everyone, but, but fathers specifically, on January 14th, we're going to have uh, Dr. Kerry Chapman in here, uh, the Five Love Languages guy, and he's going to do a family conference for us on Saturday, January 14th. So if you're a father, and this is of all ages, if your kids are adults, this will be, this will be good for you. If your kids are, are still where my kids are at, younger, this will be good for you. Sign up today to go to that conference, Saturday, January 14th, as your next step of saying, I don't know what to do yet next. Uh, next, to, to be the kind of father that John the Baptist was trying to make of, of Israel in that day. But I can, I can show up on a Saturday in January because what I was going to do is just be cold at my house alone. Instead, I'm going to come and be with people and learn how to be better in, in my own family dynamics. So January 14th. So those two next steps. Worship with your kids in service. Be here on Saturday, January 14th. So again, I, There's a lot I could say on what John the Baptist is going to do. I find that really interesting. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Fathers, may that be true of us here. But the second thing that I want to talk about, where I want to end, is the angel says, John will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So third, what's our response to God's grace going to be? So you get two responses in this text, and they're contrasted with one another. Uh, One response is Zechariah's response. His response How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, you could read that and think, that's just an innocence. How's this going to happen? I'm old. It's clear there's more going on because here's what Gabriel will say in response. 
I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Just imagine this. He's a priest. He knows his Bible. By the way, every time in the Bible an angel shows up and there's a childless couple, a baby happens. It happens a lot, actually. He's in the temple. It's a once-in-a-lifetime moment. He's in the presence of God, the second most holy place. An angel is speaking to him, and he does not believe. Your proximity to religion does not mean you are able to receive God's grace. Your proximity to religious things does not mean you are ready to receive God's grace. Just because you're in this room and I'm going to talk a lot about grace in the next couple of minutes. doesn't mean you're going to hear anything that I have to say. doesn't mean I'm going to hear myself. And that's a common theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. Those who read their Bibles the most, are in church or synagogue the most, who know the most, do not respond to God's intervention of grace in their life. It's almost always the childless woman, the outcast. It's the poor and the vulnerable. It's the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. The religious people are not interested in God's grace. And that should be a warning to us who are close to religious things. We know some things, but, but do you live in God's grace? So that's one response. Zechariah doesn't believe. And the punishment for him is he's not going to be able to speak for nine months until his wife is uh, has this child, which is, I thought about uh, how many women would have loved this gift. <laughs> you mean my husband's not going to speak until I have this baby? I'll take you up on that. But the second thing, uh, second response we see is Elizabeth. I love her response. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus, The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You know what she doesn't mention in that response is the child. It's all about what God has done for her. It's about the Lord. And so this morning I can promise you uh, two things about this question. Are you ready to, to receive God's grace, his intervention? The first is that wherever you are this morning, God sees you. And that's the heart of Elizabeth's response. He's looked on me. He saw me. Years of being barren, childless, the outcast in her community. She knows God saw her through that all of, all of that time. God sees me. And God sees you. Whatever's broken in this world for you that's maybe taken a bit of your hope away, God sees you in that. And I can't promise you I know what he's going to do in response to that. Right? For Elizabeth, it's a child. But I can tell you he sees you. And the second thing I can say is uh, God will and is trying to intervene his grace into your life. But it will almost never be what you expect. So I started this morning with Betsy, and, and I want to finish up that, that story. Uh, several months after um, that happened, uh, there were a, f- a couple couples, my, my family, Misty and I being one of them, 
uh, who experienced inf- a season of infertility. And so we had people pray specifically for, for Betsy's family, for my family, for us to have a child. And we both got pregnant at the same time. And nine months later, we both gave birth to sons. Uh, her son, Betsy's son's name is Ezra, and my son's name is Isaiah. Uh, fast forward a few years, and uh, through long seasons of testing, uh, and I've talked about this, our son Isaiah and her son Ezra were found to have um, very unique conditions that make them uh, children of special needs. So I look back on that moment and say, okay, God, you answered a prayer for a child. Why that way? And I don't know. But I've met Ezra. He's awesome. I've met Isaiah. Obviously, he's my son. They are God's grace infused into this world. It's not what I expected. It's not what I even probably would have asked for. But it's God's grace. So I don't know what God's going to do in your life, intervene with, but he wants to intervene his grace. And so what, how you'll know you're able to receive it when it comes is that it's not about what you're getting. It's not about how he's answering the prayer, how he's infusing the grace into your life. It's about him. He sees you. He wants to be engaged in your life. He wants to give to you things, things you may not always understand what he's giving to you, but you know he wants to infuse his grace and salvation into your Life And so I hope when he does, you'll be able to receive whatever it is. Because what's going to happen is uh, this son, John, is going to go and be Elijah to all of Israel. And he's going to prepare the people of God for the Messiah. But when the Messiah rolls in, Jesus, it's not what anybody expected. He spends more time with people who, needs heal- who need healing. He forgives sins. He hangs out with sinners. The religious people have no interest in anything he has to do. In fact, they become angry at him and put him on a cross. That's deeply confusing. This is God's grace, his own son on a cross, and the answer is yes. And so I don't know what God's plans are for you, but I know he sees you, and he sees you from a cross, where he intervened grace into your life, both to pay the cost of the things you've done wrong in your life, the sins, mistakes you've committed, but also to enter into a world of brokenness and say, I know this place is wrong, and one day I'll make all things new. It's why his life culminated on a cross and not with a crown, because he was entering into a broken world to break his grace and salvation into it. And listen, Zechariah, he didn't believe Gabriel in the temple, an angel speaking to him, but yet you and I, we got something far better than that. What we have is Jesus, the Son of God, from a cross, inviting us to his table of grace. The only question is, are you Zechariah or are you Elizabeth? God's grace is broken into this world. Can you receive it? Let me pray. Uh, Father, in a moment, we're going to take communion, and what an, what an evidence of your grace. The Son of God's body given to us, bloodshed for us. Would you give us humble hearts to confess? We, we have to receive that to come into the kingdom of God. We're in great, great need. So may we come to your table in need, and may we leave full of your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, that is what we're going to do now is communion. And so if, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, we want to invite you to the table. We have four stations up front. There's one in the balcony. Uh, common groups of, of five to seven, take the bread, dip it into the juice, eat together at the instructions of those 
who are serving you. If you're not yet a Christian, this meal is not yet for you. Um, uh, but we believe God's seeking you now. He sees you. So ask him to, to show himself to you, how he sees you. Um, but as you're ready, we invite you to his table. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.